0: The year was 1843, and in New York and Massachusetts, a man named William Miller began to go throughout the region and preach. As people heard William Miller preach, they began to really like what he had to say, and he developed a little bit of a following. And that following turned into a movement that eventually reached about 100,000 people fanatically following William Miller, and they called themselves, obviously enough, Millerites. Millerites. And William Miller began telling his followers, telling all the Millerites, that he knew that Jesus was about to come back to earth, that Jesus was about to return. And he told them that it was going to happen sometime in the range of March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844, which as far as Doomsday Prophets goes, he's given himself a lot of leeway, a lot of slack. And so as this year went on, the people began to be more and more fanatical and emphatic about these teachings of William Miller to the point where they started to think, you know what, if Jesus is about to come back, I don't need any stuff. And so they just got rid of all their stuff. And they said, if he's about to come back, I don't need to work. And so they quit their jobs and they quit tending to the fields and they quit worrying about anything because they thought that Jesus was about to wipe everything out and they were going to disappear. And then, of course, came March 22nd. 1844. But not before. Some people were so fanatic that they believed that they could pinpoint the exact moment that Jesus was going to come back. And I know I've told this story before, but I love it. And you'll hear it more times than this in the course of my ministry. They began to climb to the top of their houses and leap off their houses, thinking that they could time the exact moment that Jesus was going to come so they could be first in line to the show to get snatched up by Jesus. And of course, it just ended with a lot of pain. So March 22nd comes and Miller comes before his congregation and says, hey, guys, (laughs) had to be an awkward day. Turns out it wasn't this year. But fair or not, my friends, because I know now with definite certainty that Jesus is going to return on October 22nd, 1844. And the people thought, Whew, boy, (laughs) glad I didn't jump off my roof yet. I needed to save that date for later. And then comes October 23rd, which historians now call the Great Disappointment. There's always been chaos and confusion and just a lot of weirdness around this very important thing that we believe as Christians that one day Christ is going to return to make all things right and all things new. And it makes sense. Because this is the, the pinnacle of what we believe, that we believe that everything that we do and everything that we are is because one day for anyone who puts their faith in Christ, not only are we forgiven of our sins, but we have this promise that we have an eternity with our God and that one day Jesus is going to come to earth again and he's going to make everything right and everything new and wipe away all of our tears and pain and sickness, sorrow, sadness, and sin. That was a lot of S's, but they're all going to be gone, right? And it's an amazing thing. And so, of course, we would want to know the when and why. But while the timing and specifics of Jesus' return are uncertain, there are a couple things that are not. One is that he will, that it's a promise that we have in Scripture that he who began that good work isn't going to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus, and he will come and make everything new. But we also know for certain that we have work to do until he does. And so we're going to continue our look through the book of Luke as Jesus teaches us about the kingdom of God, and we're going to see Jesus teach us where our priorities and our focuses should lie as his people until kingdom come, until the day when Christ returns. We have a job to do, and Jesus is telling his disciples in this passage that they need to stay focused on what matters and not be distracted by the things that we can't know or understand. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 17. Verse 20 through 37, it's a little bit of a chunk this morning, but hang with me as we read God's word. It says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here don't go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky on one side or the other, so will the son of man will be in his day. But he first must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the son of man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and be given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day of the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let no one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, and one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one taken and the other left, and they will say to him, where, Lord? And he said to him, where the corpse is, there the vultures gather. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word and the clarity that it often brings when we pay attention. But God, you know that we are not always good at paying attention. You know that we are easily distracted and that we tend to get wrapped up in the things that aren't important forsaking the things that are. I know that's certainly true for me. So God, today as we read these words of Christ, help us to see them as a reality check and a wake-up call to put our focus where it matters until we see our faith-made sight, until that moment where all that we work for will be revealed as Jesus comes to make everything right and everything new. God, you know it's, it's frustrating for us at times. You know that it can be difficult for us to wait, certainly when we, we don't know how long we have to wait. But God, remind us that time and space are in the palm of your hand, and that you work out everything in the fullness of time in the exact moment that it needs to be, and so help us to trust you with the details we don't know, and to serve you in the ones that we do, and help us to be good and faithful workers, going and loving you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves until the day when you make it all new. So speak to us through your word. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The very first, we'll call it a date. It was kind of sort of a date, but the very first date-like thing that Stephanie and I went on was this group outing that she invited me to. So we, we met, we talked, I told her I wanted to hang out with her, I got her number, all that kind of good stuff. But it it was very clear that she probably was a little uncertain about someone such as myself. And so she invited me to this group shindig with a bunch of her friends. And it was probably warranted. I don't know if I've told you this before, but there was an actual prayer meeting by some of Stephanie's friends when they found out that we were dating because they were very concerned about her because of me. So that was weird. But so we go on this group outing with some of her friends to see the third Lord of the Rings movie. This is a good time to admit to you that I hate... Lord of the Rings. It does nothing for me. I don't really like fantasy, and I certainly don't like three-and-a-half-hour fantasy, where I have to sit there and watch something that I don't particularly care about. And the people that watch them in marathon style, there's something deeply wrong with you, if that's you. I don't understand the ability to sit in one room for that long and watch one thing, but that's where I found myself. And Lord of the Rings 3 ends like six times, if you've seen. It just feels like it's never going to end. And I'm falling asleep through the whole thing, and she keeps elbowing me. I didn't know we were that close yet, but apparently we were. But there was one person that we went with that was a mutual friend of ours, and she was convinced that the Lord of the Rings was an allegory to Christianity, which it's not. J.R.R. Tolkien very clearly said that it's not. In fact, he yelled at C.S. Lewis a little bit when C.S. Lewis wrote an allegory in the Chronicles of Narnia because he thought it was weird and silly. It's just a story about good and evil, but nobody could tell this girl that. And so the entirety of the movie, I could hear six seats down, her constantly whispering. Every time a new character came on scene, she would say, is that Jesus? Is that supposed to be Jesus? This one, is he Jesus? The whole movie, so three and a half hours with all of these ridiculous characters, a goat walks onto the stage and she's like, is that one Jesus? Because she couldn't figure out which one was supposed to be the type of Christ in the movie, and none of them were. But there are a lot of times when Christians are like that when it comes to the coming of Christ. We sit down with our newspaper or with the news on TV or with Twitter in our hand or wherever you get your news from. And you see events that are taking place in the world and we think about things that are going on and we start saying, is that Jesus? Is this, the, is this the sign that I'm looking for? Is this the thing that's going to be coming? And it seems like there's more of those lately. I don't know if it's just that we have more access with each other. But I teach a middle school Bible class. And so at least once a quarter, I have a herd of children coming to my classroom saying, Have you heard? Have you heard? Have you heard? There's an earthquake, and Jesus is coming back. Or there's an eclipse, and Jesus is coming back. Or there's a harvest moon, and Jesus is coming back. Fill in the blank with some sort of thing. And they are convinced with everything inside of them that that's the sign. And apparently not much has changed over time. This is not a new phenomenon for for followers of Christ or for the people of God. Look how this passage starts. In verse 20, it says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And so Jesus is teaching, and all these Pharisees want to know is, Okay, if you have some sort of special insight, then you tell us when the kingdom of God is coming. What are the signs that we should be looking for? What's the moon going to look like? What do we have to pay attention to? What are we going to hear from the heralds in the street? What do we need to be looking for to know that the kingdom of God is coming? And Jesus' answer had to just annoy them unbelievably. Because he says the kingdom of God is not coming. They probably had to really hold on to that one. Hopefully he didn't give too long of a pause here. He says the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And the Pharisees, just like us, they like signs. Just as people, we like things that we can measure and things that we can observe. And we like to be able to mark out time. And we don't like to wait indefinitely. But now Jesus gives none of those things. He says the kingdom is not going to come in a way that you can observe or in a way that you can see. In any normal kingdom, you would be able to see it coming. Whether it's the slow build of a kingdom from the ground to to something spectacular or a conquering nation going from region to region and spreading their boundaries, kingdoms were easy to spot when they came along. But as Jesus has taught us all through the book of Luke, this is not a normal kingdom. In fact, the kingdom of God came so quietly that it's now standing in front of them and they couldn't see it. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. An easy translation is Jesus says, I'm right here. Everything that you've been looking for, everything you think you're supposed to expect, I'm here with it. I'm bringing it into your presence. They were looking for signs in the distance while the king stared them right in the face. And I wonder how much we miss looking for something that's actually right in front of our faces. How much we miss trying to decipher signs that we don't need to be paying attention to when God is saying, you have a mission and a job and a task right now, and Christ is coming back one day, and that's your goal. That's the place where you're heading. But until then, here's what you're supposed to be doing. And we stop and think, you know what? I'd rather pay attention to all these other things. We have to learn from Jesus. And to pay attention to the things that we know and the things that he has made clear and not get lost in the things that he hasn't and the things that we don't know. Because God holds time and space in the palm of his hand. God is taking care of all the details we don't understand. And so we can trust him with those things and do what we're called to do in the meantime. And so Jesus drops this bomb on the Pharisees saying, you're not going to be able to see it coming. It's not that kind of thing. It's not the kind of kingdom you're expecting. And then he just kind of leaves it there. And he turns and he starts talking to his disciples. And it kind of feels a little bit like one of those mic drop things. You know, he just, he drops that bomb and says, have a good day, gentlemen. And then he goes and talks to his disciples. And he says, now that we're on this topic, I need to teach you something more about the kingdom. And this is what he says. In verse 22, he says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. He's preparing the disciples now for a time when they're going to be alive without Jesus there in their presence, a day when they're going to be longing for their king, for their master, for the one they gave their lives to follow to come again. He says, there's going to be a time in each and every one of your lives where you are desperate to see my day come, where you are desperate to see me make everything right and everything new, and you're not going to see it. For each of those disciples gathered around him, that was going to ultimately end with either being exiled or killed for their faith. And Jesus is saying, you are going to be in a desperate situation. and You're going to hope that that's the day that I come back and you're not going to see me. And that had to create a feeling of desperation in the life of the disciples. And he says, and when those times come, when that time of desperation comes, there's going to be people around you who are going to try to convince you that they have a deeper knowledge or understanding than you. He says, and they, whoever they are, will say to you, look there or look here. But he says, don't go out and follow them. Jesus knew that in the midst of that desperation for him to come back and make everything right and everything new, that his disciples were going to be very easy to distract and to turn away. But he calls his disciples to put on blinders. He says, don't let all of these rumors and all of these things, all this talk around you distract you because you have a mission to do. And so don't pay attention to the nonsense. Don't follow those things. But you just keep following me. You see, the Christian life is hard enough. And as we've seen over and over through the book of Luke, the Christian life is answering the call to follow after Jesus, to follow in the footsteps that he's laid out before us and to go where he leads. And that can be so difficult and require so much discipline that we can't add any of those frivolous extra things around us, talking, causing us to move back and forth, but we just continue in those footsteps that Christ has laid out, daily serving Jesus by loving God and loving our neighbors, daily keeping ourselves away from sin and temptation and towards righteousness and just following after Christ until our faith is made sight. And so our calling here is to keep our focus on Christ. To keep our mind on Jesus and on his word and don't be distracted by the chaos around us. We're told all through the scripture that things are going to happen. That life is hard, that the world is broken, that sin creates a lot of things, that there are wars and earthquakes, and the earth itself is groaning for Christ to return. And so as long as we're taking breath, there is going to be chaos and distraction in this world. And it's not for us to try to decipher what those things mean, but to know that our place in that world is to make things better and brighter for the cause of Christ until he returns to do it once and for all. So Jesus says, you're going to be longing for this day. And then in verse 25, he gives us just this one quick statement. He says, but he first must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And here we have just the very short reminder of what it cost for Jesus to bring the kingdom of God into the world, for Jesus to bring salvation to his people. He says, not only do I have to suffer, but I have to be rejected by this generation That Jesus loved us so much that he not only gave himself over to the Roman authorities to be beaten and crucified and murdered, but he was also willing to suffer shame and rejection on our behalf so that we could be adopted as children of God. And so let's not ever forget what it costs as we wait for Christ to return. Let's not forget what it costs Jesus to give us the opportunity to hope for that day. And then he continues back on, on this stream of talking about the, the uselessness of searching for signs to, to decipher his coming. And he tells two stories from the Old Testament. He says, Remember in the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking, they were marrying, they were planting gardens, everything was, was normal, everything was the way that it had always been. And then it started to rain, and everything changed. He says, remember the days of Lot with Sodom and Gomorrah. And the same thing was true there. They were just eating and drinking. They were marrying. They were being given in marriage. They were planting their crops. They were living their lives. They were working their jobs. And then it started to rain. A little different rain. But it started to rain. And all of a sudden, everything changed. And Jesus says, that's exactly how it will be on my day. He says, for like lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. He says, life is going to be completely normal. Everything's going to be happening the way that it's always happened until it doesn't, and everything will change. You see, every generation of Christians since the very first one has thought that they were the last generation of Christians. And so far, We've all been wrong. And now maybe we will be. Maybe we'll be the generation when Christ returns to make everything right and everything new. Or maybe we won't. But that's no concern of ours. It's our hope. It's our prayer. It's our desire. But also, we have work to do if we aren't. And it's our responsibility not just to get rid of all the normal things of life like the Millerites and dump everything and say, well, hopefully Jesus is coming back and I don't have anything to do here. But Jesus says it's our responsibility to take part in the work of the world and doing what we're called to do as being good citizens of the kingdom and of earth as we love others and do for others what Christ has done for us. God hasn't called us to be detectives or speculative prophets, but servants. He's called us to be heralds of the kingdom, to be his witnesses here where we live in our region and all over the entire earth, living and working faithfully in a world that is going to run like normal until one day everything changes. And so we can't be distracted with our our maps on the wall and trying to figure out how all of our charts line up, but it's our job to pay attention to those around us and see how can I use my life as long as I have it and how can I use this breath that God has given me as long as I can take another one to glorify God and to do good for those around me. So how do we do that? How do we live as people waiting in a world its longing for redemption. We see that in this next chunk of scripture. And the first thing that we should do is to be sure that we know Christ personally. In verse 34 and 35, Jesus tells these stories about people. He says, I tell you, in one night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together in the field and one will be taken and the other left. And the purpose of Jesus saying this here is to make sure that we realize what salvation means and how we find it. Because not to be flippant with a topic so heavy as this, but close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. And there is a temptation for people, especially, I think, living in the American South, to believe that we can be a Christian by proxy or by proximity. That if I know somebody, if my grandmother, if my parents or if somebody important in my life, you know, they were a follower of Jesus. And so if I stay around them enough, maybe I can catch it like a like a cold. And so maybe if I'm close enough to somebody who loves Jesus, then that'll count me in. Or maybe because of where I live and because Christianity is kind of part of the language and the culture here in the American South, that I'm I'm just a good old Christian person and maybe that counts me in. Maybe I can get in by proxy or proximity. But that's not how this works. The Reformation Study Bible points out that just closeness to someone who who follows Christ is not the same as following Christ. See, we're called to kingdom life when we put our faith in Jesus. When we see Megan and Logan and Sean baptized this this morning, we're going to be witnessing them being brought into the family of God. And we're designed to live communally. We need each other, and it's our responsibility to be with one another and to care for one another and to invest in one another's lives. But Christianity starts with an individual commitment where God meets us where we are and calls us out of our lives, and we make that dedication to follow after Jesus. And so yes, we are called into a kingdom, but we're called individually, and all of us have to have that personal walk with Christ. We all have to take those steps to follow after Jesus individually. And so if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ before, then the gospel that we talk about so much is this, that God loved the world with you in it so much that he gave his one and only son And the Bible says that even though all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, even though none of us have anything to offer God, he did everything for us through Jesus. And all we have to do is trust in the grace and mercy of Christ and repent of our sins and follow after Jesus. And it says that we will be saved from the inside out. We'll be new creations. We will be made holy in the eyes of God. And we will have an eternal hope in Jesus that one day we will be with Christ forever. And if you've never trusted in that truth before, if you've never been through the waters of baptism, please don't leave this place today without talking to me or one of our pastors or community group leaders about what it means to follow after Jesus into salvation and to be baptized. Because that's where it starts. As we wait for Jesus to come again, it starts with knowing Christ personally and trusting in him for salvation. And then we have to be ready to go. We live in a world with bucket lists and to-do lists and collections where we're just trying to take in as much as we can, be it stuff or experience. We all have lists, maybe in the back of our minds, maybe there's something written down of all the things that we want to do or accomplish or see before we die. And those things can be good and those things can be fun. But we also have to keep them in their proper place. Jesus says in verse 31, On that day when he comes again, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. And he says, remember Lot's wife. As he tells the story about Lot and his family being delivered out of Sodom and Gomorrah as those cities are destroyed, God is leading them out of that place into salvation. And even though they have something much better lying ahead, Lot's wife turns around and longs for what's behind her. Jesus, don't be like that. Don't hold on so tightly to the earthly things, to the worldly things, that when you finally get to see eternity right in front of your eyes, that you say, that's nice, but what about? And turn back. Jesus says, take what you have, take what you've been given, use them for my glory, and then when it's time to leave them behind, let them go and leave them behind, because I have something so much better for you. What we have ahead of us in Christ makes all the things that we value so highly look very small. Paul said, everything that I once held dear, I now count as loss compared to the glory of knowing Christ Jesus. And so when that time comes, we need to be sure that we're not the kind of people who are caught looking back when something unfathomably better comes. And so that comes comes through practicing our priorities right now to recognize all the gifts that we have in our lives as good, but also that we're using them for the glory of God and that they are not ultimate, but they are tools to glorify God until one day we no longer need them. And when that day comes, we leave them behind and go to Christ. And then finally, as we know Christ personally, we're ready to go. Then we have to learn to give our life away. Paul, expressed to his fellow Christians how much he loved being with them, but how much more he wanted to be with Christ. And he said, I know I have work to do right here with you, and I know that it's my time to be with you now, but one day I'm going to get to be with Jesus, and that is going to be far better. And so for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. As long as I have breath, it's all going to be for Jesus. It's all going to be for his glory. And then one day I'll breathe my last and I will be with Christ and I'll receive my reward. When it comes to all these looking for signs and trying to guess dates and figure out when Christ will come, there's a certain element in all of us and we do this for kind of self-preservation, It comes out of this desire to know how much longer do I have to do stuff and can I go ahead and and lay all of this down and just hope that Jesus comes and takes me out of my work or takes me out of my suffering or takes me out of my difficulty. But the reality here is that as long as you and I are here, our life does not belong to us. We talked last week about what stewardship is when it comes to our finances and the fact that our material goods, anything that we have, all of that belongs to God and we're just caretakers. We're just managers of it. And the same thing is true about our lives. About who we are and all that we have, even down to our jobs and our families, everything about our lives, they don't belong to us, they belong to God, and He's given us this time to be good stewards or caretakers of what He's given us. And it's our responsibility to use our lives for the glory of Jesus, for the good of the kingdom of God and of the church, and for the well being of our neighbors. That we do everything to glorify Jesus that we use our lives to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and to do what the early church in Acts chapter 2 was doing, making sure that we were caring for other people. And then to leave this building, to leave this place, and to go out into all the places that God has us placed in our lives and to serve and to care for and to use our lives for the good of those around us so that they'll see our good works and glorify God and trust in Christ Jesus. Until that day comes when Jesus makes things right and make things new, when Jesus redeems us once and for all, it's our responsibility to love and to work and to serve and to give and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we should be like John at the end of the book of Revelation, daily praying, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because there are so many broken things in our world and sin has tainted every inch of it. And so we should be longing for that time when Jesus comes to take all of that brokenness and wipe it away and that we'll be restored and renewed in Christ for all of eternity. And so we should pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, but we should also be praying that he would give us the strength until he does to trust him with the timeline, to not be distracted by looking for signs, but looking for opportunities opportunities to glorify our God and to love our neighbors. And while we do that, while we put our hands to the plow and care for those in need, loving people who feel unloved, sharing the gospel with those who need to hear it, caring for each other, we should do so with hope knowing one day we'll be able to lay down our tools of kingdom building and walk into the kingdom of God in its fullness. And Jesus will look each and every one of us who have trusted in Christ in the face and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have used your time and your life well. Come in to my rest. And we'll get to come and be with Christ for all of eternity. And so until kingdom come, let's work and glorify God and love those around us But do so with hearts and minds filled with hope, knowing that one day, because Christ has died and Christ is risen, that Christ will come again. Let's pray.